Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. My name is Michael Welch. Ashley Titterton is off this week. On this episode of Alert, we focus on the upcoming COP17 climate conference taking place in Durban, South Africa from November 28th to December 9th. To give us some more background on this conference, we will be joined by the author of the lead article in this month's special Canadian Dimension issue on COP17, Patrick Bond. We will also hear from Emeritus Sociology Professor Vincent Mosco on the historical significance of the Occupy movement. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of November 24th, 2011. A group of peaceful protesters at the University of California, Davis, were pepper-sprayed and subject to police brutality last Friday when police attempted to break up a tent campsite set up in solidarity with Occupy movements. Students linked arms and stood their ground. Police arrested those they could break apart and pepper-sprayed those students they could not separate from the group. According to a letter written by protesting UC Davis faculty member, when students tried to shield their eyes, police forced open their mouths and pepper-sprayed down their throats. The rally was organized to speak out against rising tuition fees and police brutality on University of California campuses. The office of Andrew Swan, Justice Minister for the Manitoba NDP, was occupied for 24 hours last week. After a rally to protest Bill C-10 and Manitoba's support for the crime bill, organizers announced Swan's office would be occupied to send a message to the Manitoba government to immediately reverse their stance on C-10. The occupation remained peaceful, and there were no reported instances of police action. At the time of writing, neither Swan nor the NDP commented on this action. Egypt's ruling generals have opened crisis talks with civilian political leaders after interim Prime Minister Essam Sharaf and his cabinet offered to step down in an attempt to quell growing unrest. Demonstrators have packed Cairo's Tahrir Square and other city centres over the past several days, protesting the pace of reform. While parliamentary elections next week will begin a process of transition to democracy, many are concerned the military intends to hold on to its power regardless of the electoral outcome. The protests this past week have been marred by violence with reports of police and army brutalities against unarmed demonstrators. Reports estimate over 30 people have died with at least hundreds, if not thousands, of people injured. The city of Vancouver won a court injunction last Friday to evict occupiers and dismantle their downtown encampment at the art gallery. The B.C. Supreme Court gave protesters until 2 p.m. Monday to clear the campsite and granted police the right to arrest protesters who don't comply with these orders. Occupiers were outraged at this ruling, and at the time of writing, some said they have no plans to leave. The annual November 17th March in Athens was organized this year in response to austerity measures and a coalition government appointed to implement reforms demanded by the EU and IMF. Around 4,000 people participated in the protest and called on the government to recognize the human impact of the proposed economic reforms. 
Over 7,000 police officers were deployed across Athens, and 20 arrests were made ahead of the demonstration. The November 17th marches commemorate a student uprising at Athens' Polytechnique in 1973 that helped overthrow an army dictatorship. And those are your alert headlines for this week. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days. On November 28th, Toronto Mayor Rob Ford and his supporters on council plan to bring forward a budget that will see devastating cuts to services like libraries, childcare, shelters, programs, and community centres, and more. Toronto's downtown east neighbourhood is one of the poorest urban communities in all of Canada. They know all too well what cuts to public services will mean. But this is also a community of amazing resilience, and they are fighting back. Join them on November 26th at 12 o'clock p.m. at Moss Park at Queen Street East and Sherburne Street as they rally for public services and begin to take back their neighborhood and their city. For more information, contact torontodte at gmail.com or tostopthecuts at gmail.com. In days, the Conservative government will try to push through a crime law that is a wrong turn for our country and will change the face of our democracy drastically. On November 26th at 12 o'clock p.m. at Parliament Hill in Ottawa, come out to a protest against the crime bill and for jobs, not jails. Experts working in these areas will speak, followed by a march to the Supreme Court of Canada. Following additional speakers, there will be a celebration of our Canadian rights and freedoms. Speakers will include Kim Pate of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies and Catherine Latimer, the Executive Director of the John Howard Society of Canada. On November 27th at 7 o'clock p.m., come to Labour at a Crossroads, Unity in Action Against the 1% or Disaster, an event with speakers followed by an open floor discussion. It will take place at the Sheraton Centre Hotel at 123 Queen Street West, City Hall Room, second floor, in Toronto. Speakers include Denis Lemelin, the national president of the Cup W, Mark Ferguson, president of Local 416 of the CUPE, and Julius Arscott, vice president of Local 532, Ontario Public Services Employees Union and others. Public dialogue situations, the left's responses to the crisis in Europe and North America, will take place December 1st at 7 o'clock p.m. at Wilson Hall, 1016 40 Wilcox Street in Toronto, featuring Leo Panich, Stephanie Ross, Albert Scherenberg, and Bill Fletcher. What does the new city budget mean for people in Scarborough? More cuts? Low-wage future for the next generation? On December 3rd, at 1 o'clock p.m. to 4 o'clock p.m., at Don Montgomery Community Centre at 2467 Eglinton Avenue East in Toronto, come to a public forum to find out how the city budget will affect us and our communities. Lunch will be served at 12 o'clock noon. For more information, check out www.facebook.com slash respectscarborough. That's all for Around the Left. The U. 
UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is an environmental treaty designed to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere with an eye to preventing or mitigating catastrophic climate collapse. Parties to the convention are meeting for the 17th time in Durban, South Africa, to try to negotiate solutions to this global dilemma amidst increasing alarms from a number of environmental activists and scientists that there's been a lack of substantial progress. Patrick Bond is an Irish-born political economist who resides in Durban, and he wrote the lead article in Canadian Dimensions' special issue on COP17, as it's called. And uh, Patrick Bond is joining us uh, from Durban. So uh, good, uh, I guess it's evening your time. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. It's great to be with you, Michael, and the listeners. Uh, Canada's uh, one of the most important countries because of the uh, recalcitrant attitude of the government, the big tar sands project, and a uh, great many activists, including youth uh, in Durban, who are uh, helping set the standards high for for critique of, of uh, the official systems and uh, also, of course, um, ideas for climate justice uh, fight back. So I think if, if you consider this UNFCCC as a bit of a dead space because no one expects a big emissions cut deal, uh, then really all uh, the uh, elites have been able to do is pull together the outlines of a big fund, the Green, uh, Carbon, uh, sorry, Green Climate Fund and the, the GCF, which is being designed by uh, South Africa's planning minister, uh, Trevor Manuel, uh, as co-chair of the design committee. Uh, and the trustee is the World Bank. That is the probably most important single um, issue that's under consideration because the fund will probably try and kickstart carbon markets and will probably be oriented to private sector profiteering rather than being a, a, a huge grant system that was originally promised to Hillary Clinton in 2009 uh, as she announced that this would be formed. Uh, said there'd be $100 billion a year in grants, and that would help uh, especially third-world countries with mitigation and especially adaptation, and, and in that sense, paying the climate debt. But it isn't working out like that at all with the austerity systems in uh, place in the North and the uh, attempt by most of these uh, uh, climate finance specialists, especially at the World Bank, to use every cent they can to restart carbon markets, which are pretty much dead. So those, I think, are what we'll see coming out of the official uh, International Convention Center uh, COP17 uh, meetings on December 9 when it closes. And I think everyone will acknowledge this, this is a failed uh, project and that uh, we're, in fact, losing ground on the major cuts that we need and we're nowhere closer to paying uh, the, the climate debt from the north to the south. So when we consider the very first one of these uh, COP summits, uh, the Conference of the Parties, um, could you did you have a sense of of how and when things went wrong in terms of uh, moving in this direction towards uh, you know these carbon markets uh, as you put it in terms of, rather than uh, you, methods that might be more uh, effective? Well, sure. I mean, the, the model for doing this properly is probably a Montreal protocol that was signed in 1987. Uh, to address the chlorofluorocarbons that cause the ozone hole to, to widen out. And so uh, in banning CFCs, the ban came into effect from 1996, you really had a model uh, where the elites actually did see there was a global problem and found a global solution 
and sort of global environmental governance, uh, you could argue, worked. Um, now, the uh, dilemma with climate change is carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases are much harder to get a handle on. We're so much more addicted to so many aspects of, of the greenhouse uh, gas uh, emissions for all aspects of transport and energy and production, disposal. Uh, so these are the uh, sort of major dilemmas. How do you actually put a cap on? And the answer from 1997 in Kyoto was to a cap that allow the um, adjustment to be managed through a market which would reward those who are more efficient and therefore make the economic activity um, associated with making the cuts uh, much, much more effective when you could trade the right to pollute and let big companies that had to pollute more pay a higher price and, and buy the right to pollute from those who didn't. So that's the idea of the cap and trade or the carbon trading. And that was built in 1997 because Al Gore, the U.S. vice president at the time, he said that the United States would support the Kyoto Protocol if the carbon trading was, was built in. Of course, the U.S. voted in the Senate 95 to nothing not support the Kyoto Protocol, but unfortunately the damage was done from Kyoto. And then every year since, especially from the early 2000s, as the, uh, the European Union got a big emissions trading scheme off the ground and some others were proposed, including uh, for a little while in Canada, that was the idea. And so I think uh, because the European system has crashed uh, Last week, the Union Bank of Switzerland, UBS, the biggest bank in Europe, said... You're talking about the economic system, right? Yeah, the the, uh, the whole world financial system being such a meltdown, uh, sort of, uh, you know, to, to, to allow gambling in, uh, in, in the environment, in, in the future of the planet, to be managed by financial markets, you could argue, is ludicrous. And even UBS uh, felt that this European Union system would, would result in within a couple of years of the, the price falling to 3 euros. Currently, it's about 6.8, and the peak was about 35. And really, that price should be rising, and there should be huge transfers. Uh, if the price was in the 50 to 60 euro per ton of carbon, then you'd begin to get the, the transfers that the, that the carbon market always promised away from fossil fuels to renewables. But we're just not seeing that. And we're seeing fraud and corruption and, and a full breakdown. We worked on a little film that you're listeners might be able to um, tap into on the internet, uh, www.storyofcapandtrade.org. So that's a film that explains why the carbon markets are inappropriate. And uh, as a result, I think the desperate need for um, more state subsidies became clear. And at the G20 meeting in France uh, in November, the um, uh, World Bank was promoting various kinds of guarantee schemes to try to breathe the last little of life back into the carbon markets. And that's a tragedy for so many trying to get, uh, including, for example, uh, in, uh, in Canada, the, the uh, Climate Action Net uh, Network, and they, you know, some of the NGOs still actually believe that you can get some sort of market. And I think in contrast, Michael, the Climate uh, Justice Now groups in, in Canada and very, very important uh, groups associated with, with CJN politics, um, and very important personalities as well. I mean, uh, for example, Naomi Klein or the, the Council of Canadians and the Polaris Institute, um, as well as uh, many, many uh, grassroots groups that are fighting climate change across Canada. And they've come to a conclusion that we, we really need to have the direct cut state regulation to have uh, emissions 
uh, regulated by a central state in, in Canada and to uh, do away with the tar sands and to um, then start paying the climate debt. And those are the sorts of genuine strategies, uh, climateandcapitalism.com, uh, uh, which Ian Angus puts together as one of the best ways for Canadians to tap into uh, the debate. The Canadian dimension, uh, a special issue on Durban is another one. These are the sorts of Canadian inputs that we really appreciate and uh, protesters who will uh, be, for example, trying to, to, to stop the tar stands in September, a couple hundred arrested in Ottawa. Those are the sorts of Canadian inputs we need as opposed to the Canadian government, which will come to Durban, uh, having once signed the Kyoto Pro Protocol and then dropped out uh, under Stephen Harper and really obviously trying to sabotage any kind of deal. Talking uh, about result, Canada, do you have any sense of the way Canada is being viewed uh, by people, uh, by the various uh, delegations at in Durban? Well, as a blocker, one of the, the key saboteurs, uh, you know, Washington's obviously the worst, and we, we know a lot more about how this works because of WikiLeaks. Uh, Julian Assange and especially Bradley Manning, who's accused of, of helping to leak the uh, half a million U.S. State Department cables, many of those were actually about the climate in, in early 2010. Uh, Todd Stern, the chief State Department negotiator, was caught uh, bribing and bullying countries like the Maldives offering $50 million to, to um, this sinking Indian Ocean island uh, so that they would uh, do a U-turn on their principles and support the, the uh, Copenhagen Accord that the U.S. generated to basically do nothing about the climate. And, and this is a kind of uh, outrageous tactics that mean, I think most people know, between Washington and, and Ottawa, maybe you could add uh, Brussels and uh, Tokyo and, and Moscow, some of the major uh, emitters are just, out there to sabotage any kind of global deal. Could you talk a little bit about your hometown of, of well, your where you reside of Durban? Uh, some of the, you you mentioned in your article in Canadian Dimension that uh, it's got some unique characteristics that uh, seem relevant in the face of this. Uh, uh, no, not only the the climate catastrophe as well as the the, the economic uh, forces that seem to be wanting to sabotage it. Could you talk a little bit about Durban itself? Yeah, well, indeed, it's the second largest uh, city in population, three and a half million in, in South Africa, with the largest port in Africa and uh, the largest petrochemical complex. So it's uh, a bit of an armpit of, of the continent, uh, even the Niger Delta and uh, other oil-producing uh, countries uh, don't have as, quite as large a refinery um, complex as we do here where I'm talking from, where I live in South Durban. And it's uh, old uh, rust bucket kind of stuff. I mean, it just blows up regularly. We, we had on October 10 an explosion that had uh, hot oil raining down from the skies uh, half a kilometer away from the, one of the big refineries engine. 110 uh, school kids uh, were out playing at a break, and uh, this fire broke out, and, and the hot drops of oil landed on them, and they uh, were hospitalized. So this is a kind of uh, total disregard for safety to sort of a mini Bhopal's happening regularly in this petrochemical complex. Um, in addition, we have the largest of the, the landfills and uh, the clean development mechanism, carbon trading system, uh, allows this landfill's methane to be turned to electricity and carbon credits to be earned by the city. Even though the, the landfill is um, uh, dating to 1980, it's in a black neighborhood and should have been closed. A, a very obvious case. No one of environmental racism from apartheid, but it's been kept open. The World Bank tempted the city to sort of you know, keep it open from 
uh, the early 2000s just to get these carbon credits. Uh, in addition, we have a lot of protests. South Africa is one of the great sites of, of uh, social protest because of the huge contradictions, Michael. We, we have raced ahead of Brazil to be the uh, most unequal major country in the world. And many of these are over electricity because the price has gone through the roof, uh, over 120% increase the last three years, with 25% increases coming up for the foreseeable future. And the reason is uh, we're building uh, the, the third and fourth largest coal-fired power plants in the world right now. The World Bank made a $3.75 billion loan, their biggest ever last year, and for the Madupi Kosile plants of the company ESCOM, that requires huge increases. But the increases don't apply to uh, companies like BHP Billiton and uh, Anglo-American, which have the cheapest electricity in the world on a 40-year contract cut during the late years of apartheid. And so that's the, the huge contradiction of, of sort of energy apartheid that a lot of people are protesting about. Of course, water systems and food sovereignty and uh, the, the sort of climate refugees running into xenophobia, all kinds of other problems here in Durban mean that we're going to be um, not just our beautiful beaches underwater as the water rises, but in so many ways, really a city adversely affected and unprepared for climate, although doing a bit of greenwashing, obviously, to say you can fly to Durban and offset your, your emissions by planting trees and let's change some light bulbs and you know a few tokenistic greenwashing activities. I hope everyone's watching because there are going to be protests. A COP17 Occupy movements just sprung up the last couple of days with the likely sort of occupation of a piece of grass near the, right next to the convention center. And I hope that's going to be the basis in addition to a large civil society alternative summit at the University of KwaZulu-Natal where I teach that's going to be the basis for lots of good resistance and uh, discussion and promotion of alternatives uh, to, to the plans of the 1%. And I must say, Canada is giving us a lot of great inspiration by holding firm in so many sites, uh, uh, freezing places like Edmonton and uh, sites where there's, I'm sure, great pressure from the police like Toronto to, to have evictions. I'm sure the Occupy movement will be happy to hear that. So uh, if you've got the folks uh, in the... Uh summit itself, effectively, if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, trying to, uh, you know, compromising the, saving the economic system at the expense of the planet, uh, and, and the folks who are protesting on, on the outside uh, doing the opposite. Is there anything else that you're seeing on the ground in opposition that maybe differs from previous summits that, that, that we might expect or anticipate a positive outcome? Well, I think we've actually forged a great deal of unity amongst community, labor, and environment in ways that, for example, we didn't see in Cancun, which was uh, the prior COP in Mexico, and it was a very divided site. The left was split in ways I thought was uh, quite sectarian, and probably uh, Cancun before that, uh, Copenhagen, the independent left climate justice didn't want to have too much to do with the, the sort of uh, NGO scene. And, you know, I think we've been able to bring things together. There's obviously a divide between those in the climate action uh, network, uh, sort of big NGOs, World uh, Wild Fund for Nature, WWF, or even Greenpeace that support carbon trading still, uh, versus uh, so many of us who are who, you know, promoting climate justice. But, you know, everyone's working together to send a signal, system change, not climate change, for a big global day of action, big march on December the 3rd. 
Uh, and the most important development is that labor, normally very closely allied with the South African government, the African National Congress, uh, is actually going to be marching against the, 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 the COPs, the Conference of Polluters, as we're calling it, alongside community environment. I mean, obviously, there's some in labor, the mining uh, unions that are uh, still interested in exploiting fossil fuels. But even the metal workers, one of the very brilliant unions, they just had a, a big delegation visiting Toronto uh, last month. Uh, they've been able to say, well, let's have a just transition, look for a million climate jobs uh, out of uh, not smelting or doing autos, but a, a transition into uh, solar hot water heaters and getting the turbines going for uh, big wind and, and tidal energy and, and trying more public transport. So I think that's actually one of the most exciting developments is uh, along with very brilliant uh, Canadian allies like United Steelworkers, the uh, Canadian uh, auto workers, some, some very good people who've been visiting us from advanced sectors of the Canadian trade union movement. We, we hope we'll find labor, community, and environment in a very harmonious way, looking for some radical changes and a just transition. Okay, Patrick Bond, I think we have to leave it there. But before we go, before you go, could you maybe is there a a, a website or or some other destination if that you could direct our listeners to if they want more information about this uh, conference and the uh, resistance? Well, indeed, there are so many that are springing up. So by Googling uh, phrases like um, uh, Durban Climate Justice, you'll, you'll find the, the Climate Justice Now global site pointing to Durban. You'll also find a conference of polluters having quite a lot of fun things and then a, a new uh, uh, Occupy COP17 site. Um, the c17.org.za is a site where the sort of uh, logistics of this, the activities of the civil society will be spelled out. But um, I'd recommend our own, which is uh, the Center for Civil Society, very progressive uh, small center in the university. We're at the CCS, Center for Civil Society, ccs.ukzn.ac.za. And I think if uh, people are looking for solidaristic activities, December 3rd is such a good day for the Occupy movement uh, to get the environmental message, as so many of, of uh, your, your people have done, but particularly to, to link the uh, disasters of uh, climate management through carbon trading through the financial markets, uh, on the one hand, to the kind of critique that uh, Occupy is making of the financialization of politics. And if you put all of this together, you see why uh, the, uh, the, the big critique we've developed of uh, commodified air and the, uh, the sort of carbon trading gimmickry applies very much to the way uh, Occupy and so many others in Canada have traditionally attacked um, corporate and financial control of, of your political system. So I hope you continue on the left in Canada to give us uh, such inspiration and, and great ideas. I'm associated with the Socialist Register out of Toronto, where uh, Leo Panitch, the main editor, and Greg Albo and so many others associated with York University have, have again, provided political, economic, and uh, political, ecological connections. So let's keep those going. Okay. Patrick Bond, thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us uh, here on Alert. We'll just have to see how things develop over the course of that two-week period. Great. Thanks, Michael. Good luck with your work, too. Cheers. Thank you. And that was Patrick Bond. Uh, he is an Irish-born uh, political economist. He lives in Durban and uh, is uh, sp speaking to us 
from Durban on the eve of the uh, Durban-South African COP17 summit, which begins November 28th and ends on December 9th. Canadian Dimension Magazine's new November-December 2011 issue is out now, featuring a special focus on the COP17 climate change meeting in Durban, South Africa, as well as grassroots opposition to some of the worst contributors to greenhouse gas emissions in both Canada and South Africa, including Alberta's tar sands, shale gas, and uranium mining. The special section called Stepping Up for the Planet is a joint production between Canadian Dimension and South African journal Amandla, also featured in the new issue of Canadian Dimension are reflections by Libby Davies, Murray Dobbin, Judy Rebick, and others on politics after Jack Layton, an examination by Sam Gindon and Michael Hurley of the assault on public services, and Richard Swift's take on independent Jewish voices. The Canadian Dimension Collective takes on the Occupy movement in this issue's editorial, The Ballerina and the Bull. For all this and more, pick up the new issue of Canadian Dimension today. Governments across North America have apparently lost their patience with the Occupy movement and are shutting down Occupy sites from coast to coast, including the site that started it all at Zuccotti Park in New York City. Nevertheless, the movement and its message calling for resolving the injustices within our economic system shows no sign of abating. To talk about the state of the movement, we are joined by Vincent Mosco. Vincent Mosco is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Queen's University and has visited a number of Occupy sites already. He joins us from Ottawa. So welcome to Alert, Vincent Mosco. My pleasure. Could you tell us, first of all, uh, what, what is, in your mind, is the significance of this movement historically? Well, I think this is a very significant uh, movement. Um, and there are, there are three major reasons. Um, the first of which is that it has um, spread everywhere in, in North America. I'm struck by uh, the fact that uh, we've seen sites in, in small towns as well as in, in large cities. Secondly, it's brought together a, a, a very diverse group of people. I was struck when I visited the New York site uh, in October that uh, it contained not only um, students and young demonstrators, but uh, trade unionists, uh, older and younger minority groups, uh, just a wide range of, of people. Um, this is fairly extraordinary. Um, it hasn't been unusual in the history of North American political movements for, for example, students and trade unionists to disagree fundamentally. Um, the third, I think, important uh, characteristic is that the movement was united behind a single important issue, and that is growing inequality of wealth and income uh, across North America. Um, that in itself helped overcome a number of divides that have uh, uh, kept other movements from uh, broadening their base. And so it seems to me for these reasons, 
Um, this marked, at least in my view, uh, the most important uh, social movement of at least the last uh, two generations. Um, and I have some experience with these movements. Um, my first demonstration was in 1967 when I joined 100,000 people marching on the Pentagon to protest the Vietnam War. I was also at the largest demonstration in U.S. history, an anti-nuclear demonstration that brought a million people to Central Park in 1982. So I have some experience in participating and in studying these movements, and this, this uh, is the, the most important, frankly, in my lifetime. Well, to why do you think that this movement is manifesting itself now as opposed to years ago or, or perhaps years in the future? Is there any specific, anything about this specific moment in time that's made this movement come alive the way it has? Yes, I, I think there is. I mean, there, one might point to, to a number of things, but for me, the, um, the economic crisis of 2008, which continues today, is, is a, a vital uh, cause. Um, it, it's both the, the, the recognition of economic crisis and um, the widespread knowledge that we now have that it was the manipulation of the financial system given uh, years of, of deregulation and just simply a failure to manage the global financial system. Um, this in itself uh, began, at least in, in late 2008, to uh, precipitate a feeling of, of sheer anger and outrage. Now, in my view, uh, in the United States especially, uh, this anger was channeled into uh, support for Barack Obama and his movement for social change. I think uh, in the last um, year or so, certainly last six months, uh, there's been a widespread frustration with, uh, with Obama and um, what, uh, what is perceived to be his move to, uh, to the center or in the minds of some to the right. So given a frustration with established politicians, including the one who's going to be the standard bearer for a generation, um, people have, I think, come to the conclusion that they need to take politics into their own hands, and hence, it seems to me, uh, the Occupy movement. So what are your thoughts about uh, governments uh, across the country, across Canada? Um, for example, in, in B.C., uh, the Premier, uh, Christy Clark, uh, said something to the effect that, okay, the occupiers have made their point, but uh, they've, uh, they've violated certain bylaws and, and we need, you know, they've been trespassing, and, and so we need to administer the law. And right. so, I mean, is, is there a defense for the occupiers in the face of those sorts of arguments? Absolutely, and it's, it's the same defense that civil rights demonstrators used uh, in the 1960s, for
for example, in the United States. And forgive the use of American uh, analogies. I'm, I'm an American by birth, though I've been a Canadian for uh, close to the last 30 years. Um, in the 1960s, African Americans and uh, uh, whites who supported their cause broke the law across the U.S. South and even in some uh, northern cities in order to desegregate everything from restaurants to schools. Um, women did the same when they fought for uh, civil rights in the 1970s, as did anti-war protesters. Uh, at that same time, and anti-nuclear demonstrators in the 1980s. Civil disobedience, um, including in this case today, the occupation of what amounts to public space, uh, strikes me as an eminently reasonable way to change a corrupt system. Well, how significant is it that the the nonviolent aspect of the movement? I think the nonviolent aspect is very significant. You know, uh, I visited the New York site uh, for three days in October, and, and another of the things that was striking to me was not just the, the peacefulness of the occupiers, but their generosity. Um, you know, I can recall, uh, very much moved by this, uh, right across the street from Zuccotti Park, uh, construction uh, is, uh, is, is uh, going on in, uh, to build a new um, World Trade Tower, uh, the so-called Freedom Tower. And um, uh, I watched construction workers come over to Zuccotti Park to support uh, the occupiers uh, on, on lunch hour. And three uh, construction workers brought with them a homemade sign that, uh, that, that said, um, uh, let me be sure I've got this right, uh, compassion is the new radicalism. Now, here are three hard hats who back in the 1970s, um, uh, well, they looked like the kinds of guys who beat up students in, in uh, demonstrating against the Vietnam War in the streets of New York. Uh, here they were uh, joining uh, the the protesters, uh, the occupiers in the park, which uh, it struck me as as a genuine, peaceful, um, uh, generous, welcoming approach that I've seen in all of the occupy sites that uh, that I visited. So, if you've got, as I mentioned, uh, evictions taking place mm -hmm. uh, and and they're bringing the full weight of the state to bear on on these peaceful yeah. protesters, then where does that leave the movement going forward? Well, I think for one, it will energize uh, the movement. I mean, frankly, I think that just as in the past, when when governments respond in a heavy-handed, authoritarian manner, uh, they invite. Uh, a, a backlash. Um, we're seeing this now in specific places like uh, California, where the occupiers at UC, uh, the University of California campus at Davis, uh, had police just simply walk up to, uh, to very peaceful demonstrators and rather than remove them from a site, uh, stood over them with cans of pepper spray 
spray and just sprayed it into their faces. Uh, I noticed uh, last night uh, uh, upwards of 75,000 people have signed a petition for the removal of the uh, the president of, of the UC Davis uh, campus. Um, my sense is that um, governments have overplayed their hand. They've angered a lot of people, both occupiers and uh, people who have been on the fence. Um, I think that uh, we may we may see a lull in the Occupy movement for a period of time, perhaps over the course of the winter. But my sense is that it will be back and stronger uh, using a variety of tactics, including occupations, but also demonstrate uh, demonstrations and other forms of, uh, of protest uh, in the spring. Um, I think in the United States, uh, the U.S. presidential election race may actually energize the, the movement as well as protesters use uh, the uh, interest in uh, the presidential and, and congressional races to, uh, to get involved uh, politically by arguing that uh, the, the, the real approach to bring about social change is widespread protest and resistance rather than simply make, uh, getting involved in electoral politics. Well, we're certainly moving into very um, uncharted waters, so uh, I want to thank you, uh, Ms. Uh, Professor Moscow, for uh, helping us navigate that uh, our vessel through these uh, very changing and um, unique times. Thank you for sharing your perspectives on Alert. Good to talk to you, and my pleasure. That was Vincent Moscow. He is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Queen's University. I'm Mitch Podolik, this is Music is a Weapon, and on today's show, a very interesting retrospective of the music of Marianne Faithful. Most of you will remember her as a rock diva and a pop star, but she was a real able musician, and her musical taste went all over the place, and one of the best places it went to was to the music of Bertolt Brecht. So here is Marianne Faithful singing Alabama song. Show me the way to the next whiskey bar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. For we must find the next whiskey bar. For if we don't find the next whiskey bar, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die. Oh, you know why? 
Oh, show me the way to the next pretty boy. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. For we must find the next pretty boy. For if we don't find the next pretty boy, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die. Oh, moon of Alabama, we now must say goodbye. We've lost our good old mama and must have boys, or you know why. Oh, moon of Alabama, we now must say goodbye. Show me the way to the next little dollar. Oh, don't ask why. Oh, don't ask why. For we must find the next little dollar. For if we don't find the next little dollar, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die.
Dirty shit hotel, you don't know in hell who's talking. You still don't know in hell who's talking. Still, one fine day there will be roars from the harbor, and you'll ask what is all that screeching for. And you'll see me smiling as I dunk the glasses, and you'll say, What's she got to smile at for? And the ship eight sails shining. Fifty-five cannons wide, sir, waits there at the quay. You say, work on, wipe the glasses, my girl, and you slip me a dirty sixpence. And your pennies will be taken and your beds will be made. I doubt if forty winks will come anybody's way. You still don't know in hell who's talking. You still don't know in hell who's talking. Still one fine day there'll be a loud bang from the harbor. And you'll ask Jesus Christ what was that bang. And you'll see me standing right behind the window. And you'll say, why's she got the evil eye? And the ship. Eight sails shining, fifty-five cannons wide, sir, will be aimed at this town. (laughs) 
Southern lads, time for tears, no more laughs at the bar, for the walls will be at your ankles. And look out, lads, the town will be flat as the ground. This dirty shit hotel will be spared rack and ruin. And you'll say, who's the fancy bitch that's there? You'll say, who's the fancy bitch that's there? There'll be rows of people running round the hotel, and you'll ask why should they have spared the squabble. And you'll see me in the morning leaving lightly, and you'll say that one, her, she, it there. The same ship, eight sails shining, fifty-five cannons wide, sir. Flies, crossbones, and skulls. In the midday sun, a hundred men will step ashore, all tramping where your shadows crawled. They'll lay their hands on men, hiding shit scared behind doors. Lead them in chains here before this silent woman. And they'll say, well, which ones shall we kill? They'll say, which ones shall we kill? Come the dot of twelve, it will be still in the harbor. When they ask me, well, who's going to die? And you'll hear me whispering, oh, so sweetly, all of them. And as the soft heads fall, I'll say, Hopla, that same ship, eight sails shine. Fifty-five cannons wide, sir, disappears with me. That was Pirate Jenny, Mac the Knife, and Alabama Song. Three songs by Bertolt Brecht. Three songs sung by Marianne Faithful. Here's another song by Marianne Faithful. This one she wrote in collaboration with John Lennon. And it really sort of gives you an idea of what this person was thinking. Here she was, a big rock diva in the 60s, but she was thinking about the things around her. Here she is with Working Class Hero. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small By giving you no time instead of it all
Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com to hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Sky Gonick. Technical producer is Andrew Valpy, assisted by Selena Sirik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood and Ashley Titterton. Seven Days Around the Left was prepared by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.